The incoming freshman class uh, at the University of Illinois, uh, they were recently asked this question, what do you most want out of your college career? What do you most want out of your college career? Any guesses of what the top answer was? What do you most want out of your college career? Money, what? Say it, answer it. Someone's about to say the S word. Sex. <laughs> Sex. Sex. You would be wrong. You would be wrong. The first answer was this, to someday have a family. To someday have a family uh, ahead of a good income, ahead of uh, form a good worldview, ahead of find a good job or find a career that best suits me, ahead of even party like a rock star, you know, sex and the whole party scene, ahead of that was to someday have a family. The administration was actually really shocked at what they viewed was a big disconnect. They're kind of going, wait, you know, a school that's, that's so focused on academic excellence and training you so that you go out into the world and find your job and make your money, what do you mean to someday have a family? Well, this only proves the point that I've been trying to make throughout this entire series, and it's this. We were hardwired for relationships, and we didn't come up with that. God did. And just like we have relational desires like that, you know, we desire to have a family, to have a husband, to have a wife, to have kids. We desire relationships in that same way that that's imprinted on us. We also have romantic and even sexual desires imprinted as well. Does that shock you? Does that shock you? Because the God... The fact that God not only created sex, as we discussed last week, but he gives it in its right context, but he gives it as something that's good, is mind-blowing to some people. And then even past that, that he would give us the desire for that is very mind-blowing to some people. Now, we're going to talk about soon in the coming weeks, um, either next week or the next, I'm going to address sexual sin, but we're not starting with that. We're not starting with the warnings and the boundaries and some of the consequences and some of the effects. What I proposed last week and what we're doing is we are starting with what is sex? What is its purpose? What is its design? What's going on there? Why is our culture obsessed with it? And then why are some over here super scared of it and think it's kind of dirty and bad and weird? So we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about how, um, yes, we're imprinted with desires and even sexual desires. But what do we tend to do as sinful people? We live in an imperfect and a broken world. And we're an imperfect and perfect uh, and, and broken people. And so we take good things, and what do we do out of them? We can make them bad things. We can twist them. We can distort them. So sexual desire, it is controllable. I know many of you think that it's not, but it is controllable, and Scripture speaks very clearly about that. So we're going to get to that in a week or two when I, when I, I do a thing on sexual sin. And, hey, please show and bring friends no matter what walk of life you're in. Some of you have have never touched anyone of the opposite sex, and some of you walk around literally every day with guilt just dripping off of you. And I want to let you know that we're going to celebrate this gospel in such a way that is just 
grace, grace, grace. So this is, this is not, it's not going to be directed at anyone specifically. Um, so, so don't let anything about this or when I get there scare you away. But did you know that God not only creates sex, calls it good, he gives us even those desires within us, and yet those can be controlled and those are to be saved for the right context, and we'll look at that. So what we began to do last week is to establish some foundational truths about sex. And we saw that there's two extremes when it comes to the topic. Sex is either a god, it's worshipped over here, um, we, we obsess over it, or sex is gross. It's shameful, it's a necessary evil, it's kind of something that you, know, you, you don't talk about with anyone at any point, especially not your parents, weird, you know. So you've got these two extremes in the culture. Sex is God or sex is gross. You know, when we think about sex, you think kind of God looks the other way. It's like he doesn't necessarily condemn it with married people, but it's kind of like he's like, "Uh, okay, uh, I'm going to look the other way on that. But what God's word would tell us about sex is this. In its original design, in its original intent, it's really good. And 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, even even comes uh, beside that and makes that point when it says that everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. But what is it? What is sex? Okay, um, you know, maybe that could conjure up some middle school giggles. I'm not talking about the X's and O's. Maybe a better way to ask it is this. What is its purpose? What is the purpose of sex? Is it just to make other humans? You know? Because, I mean, it seems like God could have come up with a different way to reproduce. Is it just for pleasure? Because he could have just invented the Snuggie and stopped there. I mean, what, what really do you need past that? What is its purpose? He could have made us void of romantic desires and sexual desires. And yet, in his infinite wisdom... He created us, male and female, with these longings to connect. But again, we're imperfect people in an imperfect world, aren't we? So what do we need? We need help. We need help in, in, with, with what to do with even these good desires that when removed from the right context can be dangerous. We need help deciphering these things. And so that's what God's Word is here to do, and that's certainly what I'm here to do. Um, If we don't know its purpose and its intent, you know, what's what's really going on there, much more than just than what you think of on on a screen, on a movie screen, on a TV screen, on a computer screen, on an iPhone, on an iPad. What's really going on there on a much deeper level than that? What's really going on? If we don't understand, then we're not going to get it at all. We're going to have a very distorted, kind of fractured, diluted view. And what we're after is the truth, right? Isn't that what we want? So what I want to do is cast a biblical view of sex and and, and what it is before I even get into the dangers and the disappointments of it and the cheapening of it before marriage. So we're going to start first with a text from Ephesians. Turn there if you would. Ephesians chapter 5. I don't have it on the screen. Um, So... Go there on thy smartphone or thy physical copy. 
of the Bible, which totally bonus points if you carried that that book in here. Twelve to sixteen ounces. It's it's a burden. I know it's hard to do. Ephesians five. This is Paul. I'm going to read verses twenty four through thirty two. Ephesians five twenty four thirty two. Pretty well known passage. Normally, um, kind of the go to for marriage. We'll go back to it later in the series. So let me read this. It's going to help us really establish a big overarching purpose of sex uh, in the context of marriage. And you might have missed it before if you've ever been here. So Ephesians 5, 24 through 32, verse 24 says this. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church it to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Listen to this. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, there's a few things going on in this text right here. This well-known passage, there's a few things. First is this, Paul is talking about the relational dynamics in marriage. He gives instructions to husbands and wives concerning their specific roles, concerning how they're to relate to one another. And then he does something that's very big and we miss. He draws this very tight parallel between the way that two people in a marriage relate to each other and the way that Christ relates to his church. Oftentimes in the New Testament, you would read where Christ is identified as the bridegroom and the church is the bride. So marriage is an illustration of what? Christ's union or his marriage with the church. Now, what is the church? When I say the church, I don't just mean Grace Evan. I don't just mean a specific denomination. When I say the church, I mean all people all over the entire earth who are true believers, whom know God and God knows them. That's the church. And so what we have in this text is Paul's going, hey, marriage is an illustration. Just how a husband and a wife relate to each other, the roles that happen there, this is what happens between Christ and his people, the church. They're united. You've heard me often say, our union with Christ. I mean, look at verse 32. I'm not having to make this up. I'm not isogeting it into the text. That means I'm not going, well, that sounds cool. I'm going to make up this illustration. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul couldn't be more clear in making the parallel that things that happen in marriage, the way that people relate in marriage, is an illustration to how I relate to my people. Marriage is an illustration. Now, in marriage, 
a man and woman are said to become one. This is a command. And the two flesh shall become one. How does that happen? How do two people become one? Well, when they come together sexually, they become one flesh. The Bible makes no qualms about it. That's exactly what it means. We get this from Paul's comment in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. He says it really, um, another instance, and I think it's 1 Corinthians. um, It's a a warning against uh, sexual immorality. He's talking about dudes who were hooking up with prostitutes. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 16. Or do you not know that when he is joined to a prostitute, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Goodness. I mean, that's a a tiny hint of, of why sex outside of God's original context can be kind of scarring, isn't it? I mean, when you enter into a sexual relationship with someone... You're giving them all of you, and you're actually becoming one. And so when that one splits, some, something's gonna, someone's going to break really hard, actually both of you. I mean, that's just kind of a hint there. I mean, can you, not, can you, can you catch the weight of that? Two flesh shall become one. So marriage is not just a social uniting. It's not just a financial uniting. It's not just a familial uniting. It's a uniting of bodies. This is why sex is said to consummate or complete a marriage. You know, um, in our day, a minister, uh, like Reverend Bonanno, of course, a minister uh, creates a marriage, you know, through this kind of formal announcement. There's a ceremony. He signs the documents. He does the thing. And, you know, at the end of the service, and now I present to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs., blah, blah, blah. So the minister, the clergy, he kind of creates that marriage doesn't matter what they've done in the past and this and that. Like, now it's happening. This was not the case um, in in ancient times. This was not the case at all. In fact, the act of sex itself created marriage. That's when it started. Didn't matter if it was a minister there or others, clergy or well. I mean, that in and of itself is what started the marriage. That's what started a marriage. Again, this is why dabbling with certain aspects of it now outside of a marriage commitment is so dangerous and painful when you're becoming one and then you're, you're breaking it in half. So Landon, so Landon, are you saying that one of the purposes of, of God creating sex, like he did for, in marriage, for marriage, is to be an illustration of the union between Christ and and His church and His people? Are you saying that? Because that kind of freaks me out, and that sounds like off and and weird and not right. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Because here's where I'm going to go. To understand that, you have to understand the gospel. To understand this business about we're actually united with Christ, you have to understand some very foundational things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen. Listen. Hang with me for a couple of couple of minutes, gospel primer. The good news of the gospel is not just that he forgives us. 
That's a, that's a huge part of it. And man, that's a great part because I need a lot of forgiveness. But that's not the only part of the gospel that he just forgives us. The, the, the beautiful part of the gospel is this. We're united now to Christ. In fact, in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says that we become sharers or partakers of his very nature. That's the beauty of the gospel. We become one with him. Now, why is that such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that we're united, we're married to Christ? Because Jesus is perfect. He has a perfect nature. We do not. So the gospel is not just God getting out his big old giant heavenly notepad, looking down, taking note of the sinful acts that we've committed, wiping them away, and then saying, okay, you're good to go, get in here. It doesn't stop there. We need a new nature to relate to God and to enter the kingdom. We don't just need to be cleaned up. We need to be totally, totally made new. This is what our union with Christ does. Jesus even tells Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus in in John 3 is so confused because Jesus goes, hey, no one can see the kingdom. No one can enter into, no one can see the kingdom of God, what? Unless he's born again unless he's experienced a new birth, you can't see the kingdom of God. And John's going, what does that mean? I'm, an, I'm like a dude. I'm a grown dude. Do I enter into my mother's womb again? And that means born again. He's so confused, his mind's blown. This is what our union with Christ does. Sin, us. No sin, Jesus. One, two. The two shall become one flesh. Now what happens? No sin. Not no sin in the literal sense that we don't still remain, have indwelling sin that remains in us and we wrestle with sin and we'll be sinning till the day we die. But the way now that God looks upon us is we are united, we're married to Christ. And so when we're justified, he looks at us as Jesus who never sinned. So when he sees us, he doesn't see you. And a lot of the times we just think God stomachs us. And I always hate to hear that from, from believers who just kind of go, oh, I did it again. God's just going, I, I, just, I just barely stomach you. In Christ, in our union with Christ, he looks upon us as if we've never broken the law, just as his son never broke the law. That is what's beautiful about the gospel. Now, is it great that we get forgiven and that we get no hell and we get to spend eternity with him? Of course, but that we're united with Christ's very nature. So our ability to live a God-honoring life is not based off of hard work or our efforts or just trying not to mess it up and be sexually pure and try really hard. It's not based off of that at all. It's based off of this supernatural union with Christ that happens when the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So dudes, go ahead and get as squirmy as squirmy as you want and clench your fists and do whatever you have to do. But here's the reality. Upon salvation, we lose the old us and we're married to Christ. And it's the most beautiful story ever told. So that's the first great purpose of sex. It is an illustration of how Christ is united with his people. And I know that kind of blows your mind. 
Because the only framework you have right now for sex is that it's, it's off limits and that it's bad and that it's kind of dirty. And so I know that it's hard for you to comprehend and it blows your mind. But listen, I've got to be quick here, but there are other purposes in sex. There's other things happening in sex. And one thing I'm going to do too, uh, either next week or the next, is be very clear because a lot of you, you're tracking with this sex thing when you think that I mean it as just intercourse. You're going, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I was pretty clear about that. Okay, cool. But the other stuff, that's where there's gray area. And as long as I'm not going all the way, he's not talking to me. The rest is good. And I want to be very clear to address that and, and even answer, answer some, some legitimate questions and concerns that you have. But there are other purposes. And you know what one is? Another purpose, is, another purpose of sex is this. God intentionally, intentionally created sex to do this. Um, it, it was made for pleasure. You're going, what? God doesn't want me to have pleasure. What? Are you kidding me? No, no, no. Pleasure is gross and shameful and bad. Well, have you seen the Grand Canyon? Why did he make that? Or music? Or snow? I like snow. Maybe you don't. I, think I take pleasure in snow. It's pretty. And it gets you out of school, so you should love it. You're going, wait, no, no, that's, that, that, they, they, that really can't be. Just like I told you last week, guys, the entire book of Song of Solomon celebrates the sexual pleasure between a man and his wife. And in the book, it, it wasn't just from making babies. It was, it was talking, it was celebrating between a man and a wife, sexual intimacy. The whole book is about that. And I guarantee every male read it last week, too. Like, from last Wednesday to this Wednesday, they probably have certain sections memorized. Chapter 5, verse 3, blah. <laughs> Do you know the Bible says this word? You all, you, you're just all delving in at this point. Here's another purpose that God created uh, in design sex. Another purpose is this. It's uh, for, for bonding. This is another hint at why messing with this fire outside of the fireplace is so hurtful. Sex acts, they, they act as super glue in a relationship. Super glue in a relationship. And where a lot of people mess up and where a lot of you guys are thinking is, oh, well, cool. Um, I'm ready to be super glued uh, to my significant other. I, I want that. I'm ready to be super glued to them. And I tell you this, in, in, in love... You're not. You're not. Sex is not just skin on skin. It unites the soul. It unites two people. In Genesis 4, chapter 1, um, it says this, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Upon first reading this, you kind of assume that the writer's just kind of giving you the PG version. Oh, sweet. At least he didn't say this word. You know, he knew her. Okay, cool. He's just taming it down. Guys, it's the, the original language, it's a very deep and powerful word. It means to deeply know someone in a very full and a total way. That's what it means. That's what the translation means. Adam knew his wife in a way that no one else ever would or, or did. It's like, it's, like it's, it's this secret between just them. And that's what sex is to be. 
Another purpose of sex is, is communication. And here's what I mean by that. Without saying anything, you're saying many things in sex. You're 100% giving of yourself to someone, and that takes complete trust and, and, and honesty and security. And a sad thing that I hear often is that many people are pros at knowing how to take advantage of that. And many give themselves away because they think that they're secure and they think that there's trust and they think there's this honesty. And you know what? I'm good to give every part about me and you know me in this complete... I mean, it's, 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 you're completely exposing yourself to someone. I mean, literally, physically. You're, there's, there's completely exposing yourself. Here I am. And yet people exploit that desire in us. That desire to connect with someone like that of the opposite sex, people exploit that day after day after day after day. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that a bit more. Um, another purpose of sex is this, the creation of new life. That you hopefully came in here knowing, right? If not, uh, Billy Perry's got some fantastic brochures. I don't know. He may, might give them to you afterwards. That you hopefully came in here knowing. But listen... Don't just skim over that. This is God's design. In that context, in this marriage context, this is how God planned for new lives to be created and, and, and fostered and cared for. And here's one thing. Um, I know, I, I honestly do, I know a lot of people who, who, um, were, who got pregnant outside of the confines of marriage. And some of it, later on down the road, they got married. Some of them, they didn't. Some of them, they didn't even know. I know this one girl doesn't even know who the dad is. I mean, DNA tests between several, I, we don't even know. And I know for uh, maybe a temptation for some of you is you might look and you go, it seems like they're fine. Like, it seems like not that big of a deal. They got, they got pregnant maybe on the, on the opposite side. It was a year before the wedding or, or three months. What does it really matter? Now they're married, this and that and the other. And listen, I love to see stories of grace like that. I mean, isn't the gospel great? The gospel is great. It can, it can pick up someone's life and knit it together and just, it, grace is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And I've seen it clean up the nastiest of situations and people as a, as a biblical family unit now worship God together and it's just a beautiful thing. But I can promise you there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of confusion and it's a really really hard road when we want to do things outside of the context in which a loving father has given to us and laid out for us and said hey i'm designing it this way not only because i love you and i want what's best for you i do but this is what's going to bring the maximum amount of glory to my name and so hey do it this way do it this way surely you've seen 16 and pregnant you know every now and again on mtv um does it look easy? It's not. Girls, I know you want a baby, you know, most of you. you all of you don't have to right now, and it's probably kind of healthy that you don't. But, but you, want, you, you want babies. It's, it's in you, and you want that. Um, don't do it God's way, and um, it's, it's a really, really hard road. It's a really hard road. Let me close with this. Uh, back in the dating portion, I, I, cl- I quoted this, and a lot of you asked me to put it back on the screens. You wanted to jot it down. Blaise Pascal, and he says this. He's talking about, you know, this vacuum inside of us. 
All of us have these longings. We have these desires, be it for a relationship, opposite sex, for sex itself. There's just these desires within us. And here's what he said. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing. Sex is a created thing. But only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus. Here's the reality. Our culture has made a God out of sex. And some of you have done the same thing. And as I said last week, that doesn't even mean you have to be entering into a sexual relationship with someone else. Some of you have made sex to be a God. Our culture has certainly done it. Some of you have done it, and some of you will do it. You have some real desires, some God-intended desires that were placed in you to thread you back to God himself. That's why they're there. So... I'll leave you with this question. Where do you go to fulfill the longings of your heart? Because as far as, I'm all, all, um, as far as I'm concerned, all of the longings that we have and the desires that we have can always be traced back to a longing to know and relate to a creating, loving God who designed us. So what do you do with the desires With the longings of your heart, what do you do with those? Is that thing or is that person, are they doing it? Are you willing to bank that it will last or that it will really satisfy? Christ promises us that he is enough. Do we believe that? Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your your grace and your kindness to speak to us. Lord, you've known my heart throughout this, and especially just this topic. Lord, it's really hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to carefully tread and want to be a mouthpiece and look around at this culture that's yelling everything that's the opposite. Lord, as loud as they can, and sometimes... God, we admit that it looks better. It looks more attractive. It sounds to be more fulfilling. It sounds to be way more fun. It really does. And yet you also tell us that there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, Lord, it leads to destruction. It leads to death. May you make us realize that that's true. Will you make us believe when our hearts, when they're so weak, and Lord, they're, so, they're just so ADD, distracted by everything out there that the culture is throwing at us. Will you cause our hearts, shore it up with the truth and the grace of your word and other people and your Holy Spirit. Cause us to believe and empower us to live out a God-honoring life, to properly view our sexuality. to to biblically view our sexual desire, to control that desire until the time is right. Lord, only you can foster that kind of control and that kind of love. And so we beg that you do it. And we ask it only in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.